theyeshiva.net. Good morning, everybody. Today's class is dedicated in the loving memory of Shmaryahu ben Mordechai Doiv and Bela and Aryeh Leib ben Mordechai Doiv and Bela. The class is also dedicated in the loving memory of Yehuda Nossen ben Yisrael. For the yard site, his mother uh, joins us here, Mrs. Grandma Larichis Yom and Rishonim Tevis, which should be a good tibeta for you and the whole family. Tehenesh Mosem Tzruda, Betzer HaChayim. The yard site is today or tonight? Tonight? Teshvat? There's a, there's a fascinating question that comes up every year when we read Parshas B'Shalach, namely, the Jewish people have left Egypt. Although the path from Egypt up to the land of Canaan, the land of Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael, does not go through the Red Sea, it does not go through the Yamsuf, but as the Torah makes it very clear, they took a detour. They did not take the regular path from Egypt up to Eretz Yisrael, up north. Rather, they take a detour to the point that they are now standing in front of the Red Sea. The Egyptians pursue them. They're stuck. The sea splits. It parts. They cross the sea. They're rescued. They're saved. The Egyptians drown. They come out on the other side. And it's the opening of chapter 15 of Exodus, Parshas B'Shalach, Perek Tesvav, Oz Yashem Moshe, Uvnei Yisrael, Sashir Hazois, Ladinoi, Vayomru Leimar. At that time, Moshe, and the Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel, sing a song to God. It's a song that is so precious that we actually recite it and we sing it, repeat it and sing it every single day during Shachris, during the morning services. And it's a song that continues for 19 verses, which is a very long song in Chumash. Following the 19 verses, there's a 20th verse. Exodus 15, chapter verse 20. Chapter 15, verse 20. Miriam, the sister of Aaron, which in parentheses one immediately wonders why she's identified as the sister of Aaron, when she's also the sister of Moshe. And Moshe is the one who led the Jews in song, not Aaron. But here she's identified as the sister of Aaron. Why does she even have to be identified as a sister? At this point, anyone reading the story knows exactly who Miriam is. But the Torah identifies her as the sister of Aaron. She takes the toif. The toif is the, the tambourine. Thank you. The tambourine in her hand. And all of the women go out after her. All of the women follow her with their tupim, with their tambourines, with their dancing. Vatan lahem Miriam. And Miriam speaks out to them. She says to them, Shiru Hashem ki sus Sing to Hashem, He is exalted above the exalted, a horse and its rider He hurled, He cast into the sea. That's the conclusion of the story. The story now goes on with the journey of the Jewish people from the Red Sea into a desert called the Desert of Shur, where they walk for three year, three days, they travel the wilderness, and there is no water. And when they do find water in a place called Mara, they can't drink it because the water is bitter. And one wonders, 
what propelled Miriam to do her own shira. Moshe Rabbeinu led the Jewish people in song. He led all the Jewish people in song. Yet afterwards, Miriam somehow felt compelled to do her own shira. And while the male shira is 19 verses, the female shira led by Miriam is one. That's a very interesting contrast. The men sing and sing and get into details and they dissect what happened and all the details. And Miriam takes the whole shira of 20 psukim and condenses it into one pasuk. Shiru Hashem ki goi she tells the women, sus rama vayom. So she feels the need to do her own shira. Her shira, her song also comes with instruments. It comes with drums, it comes with dancing. And all the women follow her. Why did Miriam do her own shira? And yet, such a concise one, just consisting of one pasuk, of one verse. At first glance, you would say, well, Miriam was excited, and she wanted to do her own song. <laughs> but really, she's saying the same words that her brother said. Her brother also said, Ashira Lashem ki goi gasus She didn't do a new song. She said, Mamish, the first verse of Moshe's song, Miriam repeats. She just cuts out the other 19 verses, which made it much shorter. So it seems a little strange. Like, why couldn't she just be included in the shira of all the Jewish people? What happened here for her to differentiate and create her own song, a repetition, and yet so much more concise? Like, if you want to do the shira separately, so she could do the whole shira, she only takes the beginning of it. When you study this with a little more nuance and sensitivity, one recognizes that there is the story behind the story, or the plot behind the plot, the subplot as we sometimes call it. Because what happens right after this song? Miriam sings, what's the next scene? The next verse, verse 22 of Perik Tasvav of Bishalach. The Jews go to the desert, three days they're not without water. How long can a person survive without water? Approximately three days. They encounter water, but it's bitter. They can't drink it. This is the time that the Jewish people now attack Moshe. Manishta. What are we supposed to drink? He screams to God. Hashem shows him an eights, a tree, or a twig, or a branch. Has him throw it into the, throw it into the water. The water becomes sweet. This is crisis number one. The Jewish faith, the Jewish people face with water. It's fascinating. They just had a major miracle with water. They walked through the water. The water became a fortress. Their enemies were obliterated in the water. They are now a free people. And the next scene after Miriam's song is, the water causes them so much anguish, or rather, the absence of water. A theme develops here, but a very strange one. The water saved. The water was just a place of their salvation. It caused them to break out in song and ecstasy. Oz Yashir there was a great moment in Jewish history. As the Pasuk says, after the Egyptians drowned, we say it also every morning, at this moment they saw what happened, they were overtaken by awe, and they experienced the first time the Pasuk says, they believed in God and in Moshe, and they break out in song. And then Miriam breaks out in song, and then the next step, the next story is, Three days, there's nothing to drink. 
And when they find the water, it's not something you can drink and quench your thirst because of its bitterness. And Moshe is told by God, you'll sweeten the water with a twig. That's crisis number one with water. There's a second crisis with water. And in the same parsha, in parsha's B'Shalach, not in Exodus 15, but just two chapters later, in Exodus 17. In Exodus 17, Perik Yudzayin of B'Shalach, they arrive in a place called Rifidim. And there's no water again. Wow. No water. And what happens? They come to Moshe and they start quarreling. Give us water. And Moshe says, what do you want from me? Why are you testing God? But they're thirsty. And this is when they tell Moshe those sharp words, why did you take us out of Egypt? So that we, our children, and all of our animals die from thirst. And it's when Moshe screams out to Hashem and uses those extraordinary words. What do you want me to do? Oid ma'at uskaluni. In just a little time, this people is going to stone me. They're going to kill me. I took them out into a wilderness just for all of them to die in thirst. This is their fear. And what happens now? Second crisis with water. All in the same parsha. B'Shalach, you could say, is the portion of water. It's a watery portion. Shem tells Moshe, take a stick. The same stick that you once used to strike the, or the river. Take it. Strike the rock and water will emerge. And that's what Moshe does in front of the elders of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people are satisfied. Their thirst is quenched. They have been hydrated once again through the stick that Moshe used to strike the rock. There is no other crisis of water until 40 years later. For 40 years, there's no crisis of water. From Bishalach till Chukas, we never hear anybody complaining about water. Why? There was plenty of water. (laughs) This rock, it seems, didn't cease to flow, and water was available. The third crisis happens in the middle of the book of Numbers in Parshas Chukas, and it's out of context, seemingly, what happened suddenly. The first crisis, I understand. They were in a desert, there was no water. The second crisis, again, they're in a desert and there's no water. But for 40 years, there was water. But suddenly, in Parshas Chukas, there is a third and last crisis of water, and that's in a place called Midbar Tzin. This is already just one year before they would enter into the land of Egypt. It's the month of Nisan, the first month of the year. They come to a place called Kadesh. There's no water. And they gathered on Moshe and Aaron and they said, why didn't we just die with our brothers? Why do you bring us to a desert that we should perish with our animals? Why did you take us out of Egypt to bring us to this horrible place? That's when Moshe turns to Hashem and he says, Take the stick, the famous story, take the stick, and speak to the rock, and the rock will give water, and you will have enough to give to all of the people and to all of the animals. Moshe takes the stick, he speaks to the people, and he says, Listen, rebels, do you think I can take, we can take out water from this rock? He lifts up his hand, he strikes the rock twice, a lot of water comes out. Why was there no water at this moment? The Torah doesn't say. It's very ambiguous. But as usual, it gives us a hint. What happens right before this crisis? In the very same verse, they're in Kadesh, Vatamas Shom Miriam. Miriam passed away and she was buried. 
The next verse, I'm talking now, Numbers 20, verse 1 and 2, Perik, Bamidba, Perik, Chav, Aleph, and Meis, Chukas, V'loi hoya mayim la'eda. Miriam passed away, and there was no water for the community. And you always have to mention the fact that there's a vav here. V'loi hoya mayim. It's two separate stories. Miriam passed away is one story. Another story is loi hoya mayim. Miriam died. V'loi hoya, and there was no water. In other words, the text is telling us to connect the two stories. Miriam's passing created the third crisis of water. Rashi says so explicitly in the words of Rashi, Mikan shekol arboyim shana From here we could learn that for 40 years there was no water shortage because Miriam was around. Which means that rock that Moshe struck 40 years ago in Rifidim to give the Jewish people water shortly after the exodus of Egypt and the splitting of the sea that remained with them, and it has a name, Be'era Shal Miriam. It was called the Well of Miriam. Why would it get that name? Why is it the Well of Miriam? Call it the Well of God, the Well of Moshe, a well. Why Be'era Shal Miriam? Why would the Chazal give it that name? The Torah never has a name, Be'era Shal Miriam. It's because of this juxtaposition. Miriam passes away, and there's no water. Suddenly this rock, that was such a reliable source of hydration, for 40 years, is gone. It's just a regular rock. Rocks don't give water. Rocks are rocks. So it was Miriam's passing that created the third crisis. It's also hinted to in the verses itself. Hashem tells Moshe, Speak to the rock and let it give water. Now, if you were Moshe and you're standing in a desert, have you ever been to a real desert? And God says, Speak to the rock and let it give water. I think my response would be, God, there are around 350,000 rocks here. What do you mean? Speak to the rock and let it give water. Which rock am I supposed to speak to? I can understand if God says, speak to a rock and let it give water. Vidibartem el hasela in Hebrew is not vidibartem el sela. The rock. The prefix of a hey is speak to the. That means there was a known rock that gave water. And we know about that rock. That's the tzur. 40 years ago that gave water and suddenly it's not giving any water moment after Miriam passed away. And he says, now speak to the rock, the rock, and let it give water. If we take now the name Miriam, the person Miriam, and we look at her, where does she appear in context of water? She sings the song and right after her song, we have the first crisis of water. That's the next story. The water is bitter, Nobody can drink it. In Rifidim, there's no water. They want to stone Moshe. Moshe feels that they want to stone him. God says, take a stick, strike the rock, and water comes out. And what is the name of that rock? Be'erish Miriam. Somehow, Miriam assumes the identity of that source of water. And in Crisis 3, when she passes away, Crisis 3 happens after she passes away, and again, there's no water. And Moshe is told that he has to speak to this rock. And give water. Is this all a coincidence? It can't be, of course. What is the message? What is the subplot here? Take the name Miriam. The name Miriam consists of four letters. Mem, Reish, Yud, Mem. Of course, it contains within it the three letters of Mayim. Mem, Yud, Mem. But it also contains within itself every single crisis that happened with water. Crisis number one was... They came to Mora and they couldn't drink the water. Ki, Morim, Haim. Because the water was bitter. 
Of course, the word Morim, Mem, Reish, Yud, Mem, is exactly the same letters like Miriam. The second crisis, the well becomes the well of Miriam. But in the third one, Moshe speaks to the Jews before he strikes the rock and he says, Shimuna ha-moirim. Listen, ye rebels. Moirim is Mem, Reish, Yud, Mem. Because Mem, Reish, Yud, Mem is the same letters, but it could make up the word Miriam. It could make up the word Morim, bitter. It could make up the word Moirim, which means rebels, and can also mean teachers, like Mora, Mora. And there's another word it could mean, which is, Meirim is to lift up. Like Laharim. And sure enough, in that story it says, Vayikach, Vayorem Moshe Esiodai. Moshe lifted up his hand. Here again, Vayorem, Mem, Reish, Yud, Mem could be. Meirim lift up, same etymology, Vayorem. Another combination, another configuration of the same letters. Miriam. Lest one think that the plot stops here. No, the connection of Miriam to water, we already know from yet a previous story. And when you see so many connections between a person and water, you must pause and ask, why? What is the connection? And of course we know the story. Her mother, Yocheved, had a baby, a little baby who was born, little Moshe, then he didn't have the name Moshe. After three months, she can't hide him anymore. His life is in danger. She builds a little basket and she places it, she puts it in the reeds. Suf is reeds at the edge of the river, the Nile River. That's what the mother does. But the Torah says, V'tesatzav achoysoy meirachoyk. His sister, who was a young girl at the time, six years old, according to our sages, according to the calculations that they made from the Chumash, stands from a distance. And why does she stand there? She wants to know, what will happen with this boy? Of course, we know the continuation of the story. The daughter of Pare comes to bathe. She takes... Note of this basket, she opens it, she feels a sense of compassion for this child. She says this must be a Hebrew child, a Jewish child. And at that moment, the sister appears and offers the daughter of Parai a request, that, uh, a suggestion that she finds a hard to reject and refuse. Should I go call you a woman from the Jewish people, from the Hebrews, to nurse this baby and she will nurse the infant for you? And the daughter of Pari says, go. She goes and she summons the real biological mother of the child who now gets back her baby to nurse her until he's weaned. And she brings him to the daughter of Pari who names him Moshe. And then we go on to the next story of Moshe saving the Jew while killing the Egyptian who was beating a Jew to death that we discussed a few weeks ago at length in Parsha Shmois. So when Moshe was put into the water, when baby Moshe as an infant, three months old, is put into the water, who's standing by the water yet once again? Miriam, it's almost, you can see in your mind's eye that when this six-year-old stood by the water, this would become the story of her life. She would always be standing at the water. At the Yamsuf, she would be standing at the water again and leading the woman in song. And then, right after that, somehow she would also be associated with crisis number one, and then crisis number two by the water. And then when she passes away, there is no water 
again, and her name is so deeply associated with water. How are we to appreciate all of this, to understand all of this? So for this, we have to yet go back one step earlier in the plot. How is Moshe's birth introduced before he's put into the water, before he is put into the basket by his mother? Chapter 2 of the whole Shmois, Exodus chapter 2, we're now chapter 15, but chapter 2 in the beginning. Vayelech ish levi, vayikach es levi. A man from the house of Levi went and he married, he took, he betrothed the daughter of Levi. Where did he go to? Well, he had to go to the caterer to negotiate a price for the, for the chasana. He had to go to the musician. Where did he go to? He married Baslevi. Where did they get married? Wherever they got married, I don't know. You don't tell us a hall. You don't tell us which hall they got married in. What does the Nebuchadnezzar tell you? He went. Where did he go? He went. Did he depart from one place and go to another place? What does this mean? And the Gemara in Masechus Sota, Tractate Sota, page Yud Beis 12, shows us, as is always in the case of Gemara and Medrash, the harmony, the deeper layer, the, the deeper song that is being represented in the story that's not explicit in the words. He had to go and betroth her. He had to especially go. And the way the Gemara defines it, and Rashi quotes this, Shaholach ba'atzaz bitoy. He was going somewhere. He was following somewhere. He was following somebody. He was following the advice of his daughter. Vayelech, he was going after his daughter. Not physically, but morally. And the story is that Amram divorced his wife because it was so dangerous to have children. You had a baby boy, and the baby was taken away and drowned. So Amram felt it's irresponsible, it's too painful. Let everybody live on their own. And since he was the great, the Gadol Hadar, the great leader of the generation, everybody emulated him. And all families splintered. And it was his little daughter Miriam who stood up to him and said, my tati, in some ways, these are his words, in some ways you're worse than Paray. Or your decree is much worse than Paray. Paray decreed on the males, and you are obliterating the entire Jewish future, even girls. Pyre's decree may one day be gone. He's a king, a mortal king. He lives, he dies, he changes his mind. But you, you're not a Pyre. Your decree will remain intact. Pyre's decree is about this world. Your decree is for this world and for the next world. You don't want no Jewish children. This is what Miriam tells him. Because of this, Vayelech, he went out, he went out of his mindset, he went out of his paradigm, he went out of his own imagination, and he followed the advice of his daughter, he sensed that she was right, and he remarries his own wife, Baslevi, second marriage. That's when they have the baby Moshe. But then something happens. Three days, three months later, the baby is not safe anymore. And he has to be taken out of the home and placed somewhere because if not, he'd be snatched away. So the Yochevet puts him in a basket in the water. Now let's think about that for a moment. What was Yochevet thinking is going to happen? What are the alternatives? What are the options here? You put your baby in a little basket in the Nile. Okay. The Egyptian soldiers come. 
Or Pari actually didn't only tell this to the soldiers, he told his whole nation, that every Jewish baby should be drowned. So any Egyptian who comes, sees a basket, may ignore the basket. Best likelihood is, what are the most optimistic? What's the most optimistic prediction? You see a basket, you let it go. How long is a baby surviving in a basket? How long? Without, without food, without nutrition, without hydration. How long is a baby supposed to survive in a basket alone? How long? You can't take your baby home. That's if nobody touches the basket. And what if somebody touches the basket and opens the basket? If it's a Jew who happens to open the basket, they can't take the baby home, just like the mother couldn't take the baby home. It's an Egyptian who sees a basket. The Egyptian knows that this is a Jewish baby. An Egyptian doesn't have to take his baby and put him in the Nile. Wouldn't he just capsize the rapture? They did it to every other child. Just turn it over, capsize the, turn over the basket, and that's the end of Marsh. So we usually think about it, Yecheved knew all of this. But she said, what are my options? Here they just take the baby, throw him into the river. Who knows? Maybe there'll be an Egyptian who will have compassion. But the Gemara tells us that it was that moment that Amram confronted his daughter. Amram confronted his daughter in great regret and pain because he listened to her. A year ago, or as long before before the second marriage, he listened to her. That's what motivated him. And this is where he expresses profound pain to his daughter. Because what happened was, the Pusik says, Miriam stands from far to see what is going to happen to him. What does this mean? And I'm going to quote to you the Gemara. The words are very powerful. Miriam, as a little girl, had an intuition or a prophecy. And she said, My mother is going to have a child who will save the people. She convinces her parents to reunite, to renew their marriage vows. Moshe is born. The house fills up with light. It says when he's born, her mother, his mother saw that he's good. Our sages say that that means that the house was filled with light. Her father went over to the sister and he kissed her on her head. And we can understand why. He knew that she is the one he has to thank for this little baby. My daughter, your prophecy was fulfilled. Look at this boy was born and look at the lichtekeit. Look at the radiance that he created in the home. This is the Gemara in Saita, page 12, page 13a. Once they had to throw Moshe out of the house and put him in the river. Father came and instead of kissing her on her head, he clapped her on her head. And now you say tipcha. Huh? They used to call it a patch. I don't know what you call it today. The tipcha raisha. He clapped her. He banged her on her head. Miriam, where's your prophecy? You sold us, you sold us a boat. Pun intended. You sold us a basket. You sold us a basket that ended up in the Nile. This is what she, what he told us. A little girl. Miriam wasn't older than Moshe. Miriam was 86 by Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim. Moshe was 80. She was six years old when this happened. When she convinced her father to go back to her mother, she was five, four or five year old. Smart little girl. But now when Moshe is born, she's only six. He claps her on her head. Where's your prophecy? Three months ago, he kissed her on her head. He was enthralled. He was mesmerized by her. He was inspired by her. He was elated by her. But three months later, look, everything went down the drain. 
Now with our own hands we have to throw our child, not into the river, but in a basket where he awaits his doom, where he awaits his death, either through starvation or through thirst or through being thrown into the river. Perhaps even more pain and agony, prolonged agony, more than another child killed immediately. Where is your prophecy, Miriam? We can hear the pain in a father's words who has to say goodbye to a three-month-old baby. And of course, it's because of Miriam. She is the one who convinced me to come back to Yechevet. She is the one who was so inspired. She is the one who had so much faith in the future. Two words, where is your prophecy? Biti. And the Gemara concludes, Sister stood from a distance to know what will happen. It could have just said she stood. We know why she stood. She wanted to watch, not only to know, she wanted to see. She wanted to know what will be at the end of her prophecy. Well, what does this mean? What happens here at this moment? We know what her father experienced. What did she experience? And it's at this moment that a vista is opened, a window is opened into the mind, or perhaps more precisely into the soul of this little six-year-old girl, Miriam. She didn't answer her father, or at least there's no recorded answer, because perhaps she said something, or perhaps she didn't. But there's no answer she gives her father that is recorded. Why not? She doesn't say, I'm sorry, you're right. (laughs) I just had, I was just a hopeless optimist. I just was having good dreams. I know this prophecy was just, whatever. I just wanted to see you back with mommy. It was too painful to have a destroyed family. It was very, Friday night was, a, you know, whatever. She doesn't say anything, but she stands there. But it's at this moment that Miriam introduces a new state of consciousness. What is the state of consciousness? It's very profound. It's profound because... Her father and her are operating on two different waves, on two different frequencies, as you would call it in science. Her father is looking at it rationally. That's why he separated from his wife. This doesn't make sense. This is a hopeless situation. There's no future. Why should we cause more pain, more suffering, more agony for Jewish mothers and fathers who have to watch this genocide against their own children? It makes sense. Amram was a great man. He was a holy man. He was a moral man. He also cared about his wife. But he felt when you have them together, it's too difficult to abstain and you're making it impossible for the Jewish people and therefore separation is the proper thing. What is Miriam? What is Miriam expressing? Miriam appreciates that much of life does not operate on an intellectual level where you have to figure everything out and wrap your brain around it. Sometimes life is too intense, too overwhelming, too powerful in one way or another to allow yourself to get stuck in your brain. It's a temptation we have, especially Ashkenazic Jews. We like to get stuck in our brain. I want to figure things out. I want to see the plan. I want to see how it's going to work out. I want to wrap my brain around my reality. But life sometimes throws such curveballs. 
I can't wrap my brain around it. And if I do that, I am doing an injustice to myself, to my life, to my loved ones, and to the truth of reality. Miriam says, Vatesatsav. She doesn't lose her composure. She doesn't become frantic. She does not go crazy. She does not disintegrate into emotional chaos and disarray. She stands. Meirachaik. Miriam knows that much of life is mysterious. The journeys of life are mysterious. The only definition we have in Judaism for God is that we have no definition. The only definition Judaism has for Hashem is that there's no definition. Meaning, when you're dealing with infinity, I cannot always wrap, I usually, I can never wrap my brain around infinity. Control it. Logic is a form of control. But life, you cannot control, because if you control it, you deprive yourself from the joy and the experience of life. Life, I have to experience. And I can't experience life by intellectualizing the experience, because intellectualizing experiences usually dilutes mitigates, compromises, and often kills the experience. Some things sit very well in my brain or our brains. Some things we could make sense of. But sometimes you're confronted with a situation. A situation that you didn't expect. A situation that you didn't ask for. A situation that you didn't anticipate. A situation that you never planned. A situation that runs contrary to every dream you ever had, where life is supposed to be logical, it follows a sequence, it follows a pattern. The dreams that we have as we grow up, this is how we're going to create our homes, our marriages, our families, our businesses, ourselves, our personalities, our identities. And I'm shaken up to my core and my brain is trying to figure it out. How is it going to work? Yesterday I had a prophecy that my little brother is going to save the world. And today that prophecy is cast into the abyss as darkness befalls me and suddenly overtakes my entire horizon. Yesterday I had a dream that I could become a light unto the world, or my little brother, or my father, or my mother, or myself. And suddenly today, what's left of that? And we tell ourselves, where's your prophecy? Where are your dreams? Yesterday I can give myself a kiss. Today all I want to do is say, klotz. I say to myself, Miriam doesn't get affected. Not because she understands, because she has the ability of what we call emunah. What is emuna? Emuna doesn't mean blind faith. I'm blind, I'm stupid, I don't think, I'm superstitious, I'm not a rational person. That's not emuna. That's stupidity. Emuna is not lower than seichel. Emuna is lamailamina seichel. Faith is not afraid of rationality. Faith is not afraid of logic. Faith is not intimidated by questions, and faith does not have to run away from an intelligent conversation. Faith is the recognition that much of life must be lived and experienced, not through allowing your brain to agree with it, but by allowing yourself to experience infinity, to surrender into the arms of an infinite God and take a deep breath and say, I will stand and walk with the journey and flow with the waves of life, knowing that I am always in the hands of somebody who loves me infinitely and unconditionally. And even if I can't figure out why and what and when and where and what was the plan and what's going to happen in a year and what's going to happen in six years,
I can't say I have it closely, I got it. There's a sense of awe, there's a sense of mystery. But I allow myself to melt, I allow my brains, my logic to melt in that mystery. I allow myself to be embraced by the infinite, divine, loving embrace. Understanding that things will work out exactly the the way they're supposed to work out, but it may be in a way that completely defies your mathematical equations because God's love to you and me transcends mathematical equations and God sometimes reaches out to you and says, I don't want anything to become come in between us, even your logic. Logic can also come in between a relationship. But this relationship is infinite. It's deeper. And therefore your mind is saying, no, it can't be. It has to be like this. Don't let anything come in between us. Be fully present in the reality and allow us to carry each other through this journey with simplicity and determination, with courage and resolve, with faith and confidence. Nobody could have guessed that the princess of Egypt, the daughter of Parai, would be the one who would rescue this child. In our generation, it would be saying, Hitler's daughter or Stalin's daughter rescued a Jewish baby in a concentration camp or in a Siberian gulag and raised the baby in the palace of this great tyrant. This is not something I could imagine. Nobody could imagine it. Amram couldn't imagine it. In other words, it was Paroi who instigated the whole plot. His own daughter defied him. But the truth is, this is not the first instance we have of Miriam's type of mind and soul. We already know Miriam before. The first recorded act of civil disobedience in history is when the king calls in two midwives, Shifra and Pua, and demands from them to kill every Jewish boy, every Jewish male who comes out, when mommy is struggling with labor, make sure to choke that baby or smash his skull and then just look at her and say, I'm so sorry, your baby did not survive. There won't be a criminal investigation. Peacefully, quietly, the Jews will be eliminated. And Chazal says, Shifra and Pua, who was Pua? Pua was Miriam. Pua is because she used to calm down the babies with her soothing words and lullabies. As some commentators say, the word Pua comes from poo 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 You remember when they used to do that? They still do it. poo 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 Pua poo 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 Miriam was that little girl who instead of killing the children... Calm down the children. She knew that these kids are growing up in a land where they are persona non grata. She knew that she was supposed to murder these little babies and they won't have an easy life. But instead of despairing, Miriam sits with these little infants and as a little girl, she soothes them. She makes sure they're welcomed into a world of warmth, of positivity. All the darkness around her will not derail her inner faith, her inner conviction, her inner connection 
that an intellectual may not understand, not because they're smarter than Miriam, but because they don't have the courage to be able to know that life is a relationship with infinity. And you must allow your own infinity to be able to touch the infinity of life. It doesn't minimize or escape, doesn't minimize the pain, or it's not about escapism. On the contrary, Miriam was very sober and very realistic. But Miriam knew life does not work always, and usually does not work as a puzzle that is predictable. Life is a very mysterious maze and a very mysterious journey. And the greatest thing you can do for yourself and your loved ones is not to run away from that, but to be present in full trust, to be present fully, to experience it, to dance with it, to love it and to embrace it, even though there are things that defy my understanding and defy my expectations and seem to obliterate my dreams. I will not run away. I want to be on this journey together with my God. It's here where linguistics become so important. And I'm grateful I heard this first pointed out by my colleague, Rabbi David Foreman from the Five Towns, who pointed out a lot of these connections that I mentioned and I'm going to mention now. Look at the linguistics. The principle in all of Tanakh is when you hear a word being repeated again, we call it Gzeirah Shava. It's not disconnected from the first time. God operated on a level we call today copy-paste. Copy-paste. In B'Shalach, Jews are standing at the Red Sea. You know how they translate in English, Yamsuf? The Sea of Reeds. The Sea of Reeds. Ooh, Suf, Suf, Suf. Where did I remember Suf before? Okay, Suf, that's number one. They're now standing at the Sea of Reeds. The Egyptians are behind them. They tell Moshe, why did we leave? Much better to be slaves than to die in a desert. Moshe looks at the people who are frantic. They just left Egypt. They are struck by panic and dread. 600 of the greatest chariots of Parai. Contemporary terminology would be 600 of the greatest tanks. His whole nation, whoever could fight, his whole army with generals, all pursuing them. They're stuck between the rock and the harbor between a sea and an army with women and children, senior citizens, infants, 600,000 men between 20 and 60, plus females between 20 and 60, plus children, males and females, and senior citizens, women and men. You're dealing with how many people? Two million people, maybe three, maybe three and a half, maybe four. A huge amount of people, including so many babies and elderly people, completely stuck. So they tell Moshe, why? Why did you do this? We told you, let us remain slaves in Egypt. At least some of us will remain alive. Now we all perish here in the desert. Moshe speaks to the people. You know what his first words are? Altiro, don't be scared. Hisyatsvu. Hisyatsvu uru'u as Yeshua Sasha. Just stand still and watch God's salvation. Where do I remember that word? That's what Miriam did. But look at the contrast. Miriam was one girl standing near one Jewish boy who was also in the reeds. He was also in reeds at a river being pursued by any Egyptian man 
who wanted to follow Paro's command to drown a Jewish child? So Miriam stood and watched. Miriam knew that the story of the Jewish people is not over. Miriam knew that there is a plan that defies even her father's plans, even her own plans. Miriam had an intuition. She had a nevuah. She felt a voice that is deeper than equations of mathematics of how it's going to work out. She had faith. One baby in some reeds near a river in fear of one Egyptian who may kill him. And indeed, an Egyptian princess comes out, but instead of killing him, saves him. What happens in this scene? Isn't it exactly the same scene replicated? Not one baby, not one Moshe, but millions of little Moshe's and big Moshe's. Not a few reeds at the edge of the river, Yamsuf, a whole sea filled with reeds. Not one Egyptian who might kill this Moshe, but the entire Egyptian army who might kill this Moshe. Exactly the same scene. But Moshe took the cue from his sister. There's no way to figure this out. You're stuck. Sometimes you look at your life, you're stuck. You go forward, death. You go backwards, death or slavery. There's no right and there's no left. I'm stuck. What now? Panic, fear, denial, tremendous anger, and mostly despair, depression, disassociation, trauma. Exactly what happened 80 years ago with one little baby in a basket. But there was a little girl who understood the secret of hisyatsvu. Why do you think you have to live in your brain and figure it out? You are enslaving yourself. That is slavery. Can you allow yourself to live with infinity? And in that place of infinity, tears and joy are always mixed together. There's tears because there's pain. There's grief. I may have to say goodbye to an old dream, to the way I thought things are going to work out. But there's also joy that comes from trust, from reliance, from betachin, from emuna, from conviction, from resolve, from a deep faith that everything is going to be all right. Everything is going to work out in the way it's supposed to work out, orchestrated by someone who loves you and your children and your grandchildren unconditionally forever and ever. And there's nothing that can ever compromise that love. That's what Miriam understood. Wait, stand here. Don't run away. Look what happens. An Egyptian princess saves Moshe. And what happens now? The sea splits. Nobody expected that. Where is the sea supposed to split? Seas don't split. Exactly what happened there. Pari's daughter coming down to save Moshe. You remember I explained to you about the arm extending itself. Right? If you looked at it practically, this is not an arm that can reach him. This is not feasible. You're not bringing a Jewish kid to the palace or your father will kill you and him. Your father's a Meshuganah. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator. You stretch out your arm and let God extend it. Pare's daughter stretched out her arm. But you know who stretched out her arm first? Miriam. Miriam stood there. Miriam stood there. She kept on looking. After her father went like this, nothing is working out. 
Miriam says, you have to know how to live life, my dear Tati. The story is not over. I think it was Yogi Berra who said, it's not over till it's over. I once heard from a girl. She's, she was very ill and she, she's passed since. And she said, at the end, everything is going to be okay. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. So Miriam stands there, 80 years later. It's exactly the same situation, but multiplied hundreds and thousands, millions of times. And Moshe says, Stand! What does stand mean? Silence. Or, don't when, you don't have to control it. Allow infinity to embrace you in all of its mystery, in all of its pain, and also in all of its infinite love and joy. And you will see things will happen that you never imagined. Because infinity is never predicted by my own finite way of perception. This is not an easy thing to do. Our brain loves to fight this. I like to figure everything out, especially if you're that style. We like puzzles. And we are supposed to live, we are supposed to prepare. But for the real great things, I could never prepare. You be quiet. Not just quiet verbally. Quiet in your mind. Your mind becomes frantic. I try controlling here, controlling here, calling this one, calling that one. It becomes a nightmare of trying to control everybody, including myself, including God, including reality, including my loved ones, including my emotions. And anybody who goes out of my control, I go crazy. You're capable of much more. You're capable of tuning in to your infinite soul, which experiences the infinity of God, even if my mathematical logic cannot figure it out. Hisyatsu. A sea splits. And when the sea splits, it's like, okay, we couldn't expect that. They walk through the sea. Oz Yashem Moshe. Moshe sings. Our sages tell us, that there were only ten, nine times the Jews sang. There's nine shiras that are recorded, and the tenth shira is going to be when Mashiach comes. Now I ask you, Jews are always singing. Baruch Hashem. You go here to the tent, they're singing Agan Satag across the street. We're always singing. You sing Shabbos and you sing Yom Tif. At your tables they sing. It's beautiful. Only ten songs Jews sang. Nine, and when Mashiach comes, the tenth. There's something about Shira that they're talking about that is very profound. What gives song its beauty? What gives a song, a ballad, its beauty is always the element of symmetry, of synthesis, of integration. If I would have a song made of one note, it would be uniform, but it wouldn't be a song. Imagine it would be a C minor or any other note. It's not a song. Uh, it's more like Tkia Schaefer. What makes a song, what makes a ballad is a diversity of notes that are brought together into a single ballad. Then you'll have a symphony. What makes a symphony so awe-inspiring, so powerful, so ecstatic? It's the fact that there could be dozens, sometimes hundreds of musicians, different instruments, or the same instruments, but many diverse instruments. And yet there is the choir master, the menatseich, the director, who directs the symphony and creates that holistic synchronization and synthesis and unity and integration. We call it his skalalus in Lashon Kodesh, the integration where the individuals merge into a klal, into a harmonious, singular entity. That's the power you ever saw a beautiful children's choir sing 
When a child sings, it's beautiful. When you have 20, 30 children, you know what I'm talking about? And they, 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 they know what they're doing. <laughs> There's something that melts everybody's heart. It melts people's hearts. Why does it melt people's heart? First of all, they're cute. Yes. But when so many cute children come together and they all sing together, there is the harmony that comes from diversity being unified. That's what shir is. That's what music is. That's what all music is. That's the art of music. It's the art of a song. It's the art of musicians. It's the art of a concerto. It's the art of a ballad, of a symphony. In life, there are moments that you start singing. This is not just referring to a song that is, I'm singing, I'm sitting on my couch, and I'm, I'm humming a tune, it's beautiful. Or I'm sitting at a table and I'm singing a song, it's beautiful. But all those are microcosms. They are mini expressions of the quintessential idea of a shira. And what's the quintessential idea of a shira? In history, a moment where you could look and see the full unified oneness and harmony of history. Those are rare occasions in history. History seems so fragmented. Life seems so fragmented. Look at your own life. The things that you have to do and the responsibilities. We run here and you have an appointment. And, you have a and things seem fragmented. But then there are those moments in life when you could sit back and you could sing the song. Where all the individual notes form to create one ballad. At this point, when they left Egypt and they crossed through the Yamsuf, and they saw at last the story that lasted for hundreds of years come to conclusion. Uz, Yashir Moshe B'nai Yisrael. This wasn't just a moment of joy. It was a moment when hundreds of years concluded. It's like, you know, you're reading Lahavdil, you're reading a, I don't know, a 1500 page brilliant novel. You remember when you were 17 and you got sick in the winter for three weeks? And you wanted to stay sick in order to finish the book. And the book, it's, it's gewaldic, and it's, it's, it's wonderful, and it's a snowy day, so it's cold outside, right? And you put on the fireplace, and you're under your blankets, and you're reading this book. And you don't want it to end, but there's so many different pieces. And then you come to the last chapter, and you come to the last page, and suddenly, ah, 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 ah. That's why they wrote on page one that she had gray eyes. That's why it was important for me to understand about that relationship or that political maneuver. Suddenly it all comes together. Zeh Sefer told us Adam. We don't have many moments like that because life is lived in the present. But really the present moment is part of an infinite oneness that comes together at a moment and at such a moment one comes out in Shira. Az Yashir Moshe That's Moshe's song. When Moshe finishes his song, something else must happen. Who's really the one person who was singing even when there was no song? Who's the one person who understood or appreciated that there's oneness even when nobody else saw it? Maybe she didn't understand intellectually how it will be. But she was ready to invest in it. She was ready to live by it. She was ready to put her full soul into it. This was one person. This was Miriam. Now a much older lady. But she has seen it through from the beginning. She remembers that day when she had to convince Tati and Mommy to bring the family together. She remembered that day when her father kissed her. And then three months later, patched her on her head. Banged her, pounded, uh, uh, what's the word? Uh, 
tapped her, I don't know, patted, I don't know if it was a pad, but he tapped her on her head saying, where's your prophecy? She remembered standing there at the water in the full fear and dread of what's going to happen to my cute, delicious, angelic, holy baby brother whose radiance filled up the entire home and now his entire future is on the line and under natural circumstances he will not be able to survive. She remembered it all. She saw the slavery and the subjugation. She saw the pain and the horrendous suffering. She knew it. And now, at last, her vatisyatsev culminated in the ultimate hisyatsvu, not of one boy, but of the entire Jewish people. She is the one who emerges in a song. But her song is only one verse. That's the power of Miriam's song. Because for Miriam, all of history is seen as that one verse. Shiru Hashem, ki goha. He's exalted above your understanding of exaltedness. There is how I understand exaltedness, goodness, sublimity, royalty, aristocracy. Ki infinity is not defined even by your finite understanding of good, compassion, exaltedness, joy. Vatan lemir, Miriam, after Moshe finishes singing, after Moshe, now Miriam, the one who preceded Moshe, she was there before Moshe, her song follows Moshe. Miriam at last must stand up. It's her moment of celebration. She is the one who felt the pain and did not run. She is the one who believed when nobody else believed. She is the one who danced when nobody else danced. She is the one who had hidden tambourines when nobody else had it. She is the one who was completely confident about a future and never gave up on her brother, on her family, on her people, on her God. Even in the darkest of moments. Now, when it all came to fruition, what happens? The, per- the words the Torah uses is, Vatikach Miriam Achois Aaron, the sister of Aaron. Why? Because this story begins before Moshe is born. This story begins when there's no Moshe yet. When she's only the sister of Aaron, Moshe was not born yet. She brought together her father and mother before Moshe was born. This started not when she was the sister of Moshe, the big hush of a sister of Moshe. There was no Moshe yet. All the women went out after her. What does that mean? What do you mean, Achare? She went out the door and they followed her? You could say Miriam took the, the, the drums and all the women did the same. Are very profound words, not just about that moment, but of Jewish history in general, as we will see in a moment. And Miriam says to them, Shiru Lashem ki go go. Three days later, they're in the midbar and there's no water. <laughs> there's no water. And of course, everybody is screaming at Moshe. Everybody is screaming at Moshe. Morim, Morim, it's bitter. God tells Moshe, take an eight, throw it into the water, it will become sweet. Okay, all is well, that ends well. But then in Rifidim, there's no water at all. It's not even bitter. Moshe feels like he's going to be stoned. Again, deja vu, all over again. If he wasn't killed in the river, he's going to be killed now. God says, take the rock, strike the rock, water will come out. This well becomes the well of Miriam. That voice, that consciousness that always gave her brother, 
and the Jewish people the courage to say, Never surrender to fear and despair and depression and hopelessness. Even if reality is defying your expectations, allow reality to surprise you by allowing you to surprise yourself and live in a way that you don't have to figure out exactly what is happening right now. And indeed, when Miriam passes away, that's when there's a third crisis of water. In Parshas Chukas, it's also when there's a whole blunder between hitting the rock and speaking to the rock, which is a whole other Parsha. Which introduces us to one more interesting moment. I'm going to say this briefly because it's really a whole profound sheer, but you're women, you'll get it. There's a fascinating question in Mepharshim. This question is raised by the Vilna Gon, it's raised by the Tzedah Lederich, it's raised by the Ramami Fano, it's raised by a lot of commentators. Very interesting question. Miriam sang together with hundreds of thousands of women, maybe millions. It's Kol all the women. How many women were there? Maybe 1.2 million, 1.5 million, maybe 2 million. We don't have a number exactly, but somewhere in that number. Perhaps even more, even more than men. That's usually a female population. Even then, perhaps. A lot of women. And they're all singing. And who are they singing in front of? They're singing in front of Moshe. They're singing in front of Aaron. They're singing in front of the Jewish people. They didn't go to another uh, country to sing. They didn't take the clouds to London or to Rockland County, or to Melbourne. A concert of two million women with instruments. So the Mepharshim ask an interesting question. We all know the Gemara, it says, The voice of a woman is intimate. The right translation of Erva is intimate. It has the power of intimacy in it. Shenemar, what's his source for it? Everything has a Pasuk. Pasuk in Shir Hashirim. God tells the Jewish people, Harain, he tells his bride, the groom tells the bride, Harainius Marayich, Hashminius Koilech, Kikoilech Orev, Umarich Nove. Show me your countenance. Allow me to hear your voice. Your voice is sweet, Orev. And your countenance is beautiful. This is the source that Koil Isha, the voice of the bride, is not just a voice. It contains nuclear energy. It contains intimate power. It has intimacy in it. And intimacy is sacred. And intimacy must be protected. A lot of people misunderstand a lot of the halacha is connected to these areas as though it's trying to limit women and they don't realize that this is the ultimate and genesis of women's lib. Empowering people and helping them protect their intimate powers. I remember once there's a chief rabbi of Migdal HaEmek. His name is uh, Rabbi Yitzchak David Grossman. And in the 1990s, the Russian Jews started to come out in the hundreds of thousands so he made then a beautiful choir of Russian children. Of Russian children, and they would travel around Israel, and it was very inspiring because he has a lot of schools for children of Olim and, and other children, other types of families. He does a lot of work in Migdal Emek. These institutions are called, I think, Migdal Ur. And he made this beautiful choir of Russian, new Russian immigrants that came from Russia to Israel. He made this beautiful choir with them singing Jewish songs, and they traveled Israel, and it was very inspiring. So I remember, I think it was 1990 or 1991, he went to to visit the Lubavitcher Rebbe and he told him about this choir and he he didn't do it yet, he wanted to do it. So he told the Rebbe he wants to do this, he he thinks it would be a wonderful idea. So the Rebbe says, I agree, I think you should do it, but make sure that the choir that travels to sing everywhere, for men and for women, but also for men, should be boys, it shouldn't be girls. 
And I remember he called them back and he said, Un mekenes mazbezayn, and explain it. Don't just make a decree, explain it. And he used very beautiful words in Yiddish. I still remember the words he used in Yiddish, Rabbi Grossman. He says, Akoil funaisha hadzeyer tife shenkait in them. Umedav bavaren and as shenkaits all came on their zayn hefker. Those were his words. The, the voice, female voice, has a very deep, intimate uh, beauty to it, a sensual energy to it, an intimate energy to it. And people like to feed off other people's intimate energy. Those who will know how the world works, we feed off other people's intimate energy. And one must have the empowerment to protect their intimacy, to protect their deep, deep, very powerful energy. It should go where the woman chooses it should go. It, her intimacy must be shared with those she wants to share her intimacy with, with those it's appropriate for her to share her intimacy with. It's by the way the Svarim explained the concept of Seir Bi'isha Erva, why a married woman covers her hair. Again, people misunderstand it. They often think it's about repression, it's about uh, embarrassment of here, it's about men. As women often ask me at lectures, let the men stay home. We're not allowed to sing, let them go away. What, what, my whole life I'm living because men are whatever. <laughs> it's, it doesn't have, men is a part of the, that's part of the problem, a part of the solution, whatever. It's the woman even vis-a-vis herself. Woman, here, especially of a married woman who certain aspects of identity are actualized after marriage, the here has a lot of power in it. People who understand here, here has tremendous intimate energy, not just regular energy, powerful nuclear energy. And a woman is empowered by halacha that that intimate energy she chooses with whom she shares it, how she shares it, when she shares it, with those who are in the appropriate position to absorb it and absorb it in an intimate and appropriate fashion. So the Mepharshim come back and say, true, this happened before Matan Torah, but it was after Kriyas Yamsuf, such a great miracle. Just a few weeks before Matan Torah, how is it that Miriam, a great prophet, violated what would become a halacha in Jewish history, that women should not sing in front of men, your koil is so sweet. What does Miriam do here? Taka was before Matan Torah, but she's the older sister of Moshe. Did Moshe say, Miriam, Miriam, nisht jetzt. Not now. So I saw three answers that were given. Okay, The first two are one style, and the third is another style. The first one I saw from the Vilna Gaon, and he says, it says, Vatan lahem Miriam. In Hebrew, lahem is not like lahem. In English, them is no difference, male and female. But in Hebrew, lahem is males. Lahem is females. Vatan lahem Miriam. She told the men to sing. Vatan lahem Miriam. That's what the Vilna Gaon says. And I think also I saw it from the Rabbeinu Menachem Azariah, found one of his explanations. The challenge with that explanation, of course, is the men already just sang. Why is she telling them to sing? They just finished singing. And she's telling them to sing exactly the same words. They just finished singing. She wanted them to sing again? What's the explanation in that? Besides, this is contradicted by the Mechilta and by Rashi. The Mechilta and Rashi says, Vatan Miriam, Moshe Amar Shira Anoshim, Hu Miriam Amra Shira Miriam did what Moshe did. Moshe led the song and the men followed. And Miriam led the song for the women. The women were singing. So there's another interpretation I saw from the Ragachavagon, the Tzafnas Panayach, and the Tzedel Aderech. And they say that's why Miriam had instruments. She had drums. So the drums 
snuffed out at the, what's the word? It, uh, it drowned out the voices. That's why she had drums. Boom, 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 boom. A million drums is loud. It's an interesting explanation. But again, it seems difficult because it says that Miriam was singing and they were repeating after her. If she was drumming, it says she took a drum. So if, if the men couldn't hear her, how did the women hear her? And if they're drumming so loud, what's the point of the women repeating the phrase when nobody can hear anything? There's a third interpretation that I once heard from the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he said as follows. He says that Rashi answers it in a very concise way. In the middle of the song, the Jewish people say, This is my God, and I will beautify him, the God of my father, and I will exalt him. At that moment, Hashem revealed himself in his glory. They can point to God as though you're pointing to something with your finger because it's mamish in your, in front of your face. A maidservant on the sea saw what the greatest prophets didn't see. Quoting the Mechilta, says what Yecheskel and Yeshaya didn't see. A maidservant saw. In other words, the revelation of Hashem's presence at Kriyas Yamsuf was such that you could say Zekeli. This, usually we say Ze on things that are very tangible and physical. I could say it on the book, on the shtender, on a cup of coffee, thank you, on a bottle of water, on a mic, on a tie, on a, on a suit, on a dress, on a tent, on a physical dollar. When it comes to spiritual realities, transcendent realities, I can imagine, I can speculate, I can feel, I can, I can deduce, I can say Ze. But this was a different moment in history. Nigla Aleim Zekeli. Hashem in His essence was so manifest. Not that He became physical. doesn't mean Hashem became physical. Because God transcends spiritual and physical. But it means that He became so manifest. It was such a reality that when they saw the world, what they saw in every element of the world is they saw the divine. Usually when I see a world, I see a physical world. If I study science and I take a microscope, then I may see it's not so simple. What seems as tangible reality is really quantillion uh, molecules and atoms that are running around. And if I could take an atom and see beyond the atom, if I could, which I can't, I'll realize that most of it is empty space. I look at a body, I see a physical body. If I can have microscopic glasses, I could see there's 40 trillion cells in your body that are working together. A hundred billion uh, neurons. A hundred million neurons, a hundred billion nerve cells. So what is it? It's a whole other reality. And if I could look deeper, I suddenly see DNA in every cell. I see the genome, the DNA, which is a whole different reality, but that is really who I am. It depends what level of glasses I'm wearing. At Kriya Syamsov, they had the ultimate microscopic divine glasses to be able to look at the world and see oneness, to see everything as divine energy. The Rebbe said, when you see that, there's really no issue with a woman singing. Because a woman's voice is very sacred. It's very intense. It's very holy. It's very spiritual. It's told Rabbi Grossman, Seir Shenkat, Koylech Orev. That's what the Gemara says. The Koylech Orev. Erva doesn't mean disgusting. Erva means it's so beautiful that some people don't know how to deal with it in an appropriate way. All nuclear energy. Is intimacy holy or not holy? The Ramban says that the Cheder Hamita is the bedroom in Yiddishkeit is called Koydesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies. But anything that is so nuclear could be used in different ways. Nuclear energy could light up the world, and nuclear energy can also destroy a world. Any force that is so intense, that's so powerful, if it's not used in the appropriate fashion, 
it can have the opposite effect. Your voice has so much sensual, deep, intimate energy in it. When one is completely in tune with God, when you're completely in tune with your own neshama, which is a chelik alekamimal, when you see God's oneness everywhere, he said there was no problem with Miriam leading a song with 1.2 or 2 million uh, ladies, because what they were hearing was not an energy that you may use in order to escape your own pain and numb yourself and use as a distraction to give yourself momentary entertainment. These only come in situations when you're not fully in touch with real reality. When you're fully in touch with real reality, you see everything. When the doors of perception are cleansed and everything appears as is, a flow of divine infinity, then the music, the resonance of their voices are an indispensable part of the divine symphony of creation. That's what happened at that moment. It was Miriam who lived with that oneness all along. Here, it's Miriam who after Moshe and Bnei Yisrael finish, she says, and now let's celebrate the ultimate celebration with the drums, with the tambourine. Shiru v'atan Miriam, shiru l'ashem ki goi go, sus Rama, Rama Vayom. But at last, it's always about water. Water in the beginning. Always, every story associated with water, even the first story. Because when a woman is about, when, when Pare told Shifra and Pua, go kill, go kill the babies when they're coming out, we always talk about the amniotic sac filled with water, the water breaking. There's also, in Kabbalah, the Arizal calls birth Kriyas Yamsov. The birth of a baby is called Kriyas Yamsov. The water breaks. That's what you say in English. The water parts. The water breaks. And I'm not going to preach to this crowd about this type of Kriya Sam. So it'll be a little dis- a lot disrespectful, a little disrespectful. But it says in Kabbalah, Darizal is that Shvi Yishal Pesach is the time that Neshamas are born. That's the cosmic birthday of souls, Shvi Yishal Pesach, because it's Kriya Syamsuf globally and Kriya Syamsuf individually. Miriam is there by that Kriya Syamsuf, a baby coming into a very dark world. It says in Zoya, why do baby, why do infants cry when they come into the world? Biologically, you'll explain it with the oxygen. They take their first breath. You can ask the doctor why they cry. Kabbalistically, spiritually, they come into a world, you know, in your mother's womb, it's the greatest moment. Nine months, you learn the whole Torah, there's a candle burning on your head. It, the Gemara says in Nida that there's no great time in life like when you're in mommy's womb. No stress, no issues, no bills to pay, no responsibility. Suddenly it comes into the world, it takes a look at the world, the baby starts crying, especially the world of Egypt. So Miriam is the one who catches the baby and soothes her as the water broke. She'll stand by her brother at the water. By Kriya Syamsuf, she'll be there as the water broke again and the nation was saved. She'll watch crisis number one, crisis number two, crisis number three at the water will happen after her death. It's the water and the water contained in her name. Because, because she was the one person who hydrated hydrated the Jewish people. What is water? We all know 71% of our planet is made up of water. I said 71. Why did I say 71? I know you know. I think it's 71. That's why I said 71. <laughs> 71% of our planet is made up of water. Uh, around 60, 60 or 65% of our body is water. And 90% of our blood... 90% of every blood cell is what? Is water. We can't live without water. 
It's not just we drink water. Our body, most of it is water, especially our blood, but even without our blood, our body and our planet. Water is essential to life. You can't live without water. Who is the great provider of water for the Jewish people? Mayim, Miriam. Why? You can't live without water, but you know what else you can't live without? You can't live without courage. You can't live without resolve. You can't live without joy. It's hard to live with, you can't live without faith. Miriam is the person who hydrated the Jewish people. She's not only the one who gave them the Be'erish or Miriam physically, she's the one who gave them the water, the stuff by which to live on. I have to mention this because somebody sent this to me yesterday, an article that the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who's a Jew, for many years has declared himself as an atheist. He used to say, I grew up in a Jewish home. A few days ago, he spoke at a high-tech conference, and he declared publicly that his status has changed. He said he grew up in a Jewish home. As a young man, a teenager, he you know, asked a lot of questions and rebelled, and he declared himself as an atheist. If you could put your cell phones on vibrate. Thank you. But Mark said everything changed because the last few years, Facebook went through a lot of challenges. And he also had two daughters. And he said, becoming a father of children and going through all these unpredictable business challenges, he said, I became much more religious and now I take my religion very seriously because I realized that for me to live and survive, I need to have and I need to surrender to things that I don't understand, that I can't understand everything. So <laughs> this is one of the most uh, powerful people in today's world, a young Yiddish Neshama who decided he's not an atheist anymore and he said it publicly. Miriam gave water to the Jewish people, not just physical water, spiritual water. There's one more thing about water. Because 90% of our blood is made up of water, what does the blood do? The blood allows your oxygen to travel through your whole body to be oxygenated. The blood also travels and transfers minerals and nutrients to the whole body. Okay? Water is also responsible for removing the waste because the kidneys can't function without water. So what does water now do? Water takes minerals, nutrients, oxygen, but you can't live without it. And it brings it into the whole body. That's what water does. That's what the water... See that? Like that? Thank you. You see God is with me in this class? Which reminds me about water, if you'll forgive me. This too is what Miriam represents. Why? Emuna, faith, is a property that every Jew has. Men, women, children. Even those who say they don't believe are still maminim b'nei maminim because it's the soul's intimate relationship with Hashem. But emuna, without water, could be relegated to some deep aspect of the soul that comes out maybe once a lifetime or once in a while. The greatness of Miriam was she is the one who gave us Be'erish al Miriam. She's the one who taught the Jewish people to allow the minerals and the nutrients and the oxygen of Jewish life to be able to fill the entire body. Not only to remain relegated to the sub, super conscious layers of your souls, but to be able to fill all of your organs and limbs, your arms and legs, your entire organism should be able to be filled with that oxygen, with those nutrients. That's what you need water for. All the women followed after Miriam. Because this wasn't only true about that generation. 
all the women of all the generations, all the women of all the generations, they follow after the footsteps of Miriam. You had Moshe, the greatest teacher and prophet. You had Aaron, the greatest lover and provider of wisdom. You have in any, every generation, great male leaders, teachers, scholars, men of great wisdom and love and conviction and compassion and dedication and so forth. But the gift of Miriam, till today, remains the gift of the Jewish woman. I remember my late grandmother, my Baba, she would often say those words in Yiddish. The Ebrishter vetzicher helfen. God will certainly help. She said it. But when she said it, it was not a cultural old Yiddish expression. For her, it was as realistic as the sunrise in the morning and the sunset in the evening. It was as tangible and real as you're touching your five fingers. Whenever I said anything to her, sometimes it was a little frustrating. I got a little older and I realized she wasn't trying to avoid the problem. She was actually giving me her genuine answer. For her, that was the best answer in the world. I used to say, Bobbe, be practical. What am I supposed to do about this? This gift that carried the Jewish people throughout history until today was the gift of Miriam. And when she set that example to take her tambourines and drums and go out and sing, the Pasuk says, all the women throughout history are all achareha, following Miriam's lead to be able to have the courage to celebrate every moment of life in complete faith and trust. Even as I walk sometimes in the shadow of death, I fear not because you are with me. The courage to be able to stand, not to figure it out, but to stand in full hope, in full trust, in full confidence, and in full reliance, not by ignoring any reality, but understanding that the reality we see is only the tip of the iceberg, and therefore allowing myself to fully experience the moment I'm experiencing, and to know that right here, in this reality, and in this journey, there is the loving embrace of infinity, guiding me to the place where I and we must go to, the greatest place of love, and wisdom, and enlightenment, and oneness. Have a wonderful week. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm like, I somebody last few weeks, a young 23-year-old girl who has a very bad prognosis. And yesterday I spent a few hours with her and she probably never had the opportunity to individuate. That's one, but also not to express her what was really a Mona and having these conversations. Sent her a text during this year. Got to watch this one today. She says, is that the hip rabbi? I don't know how you've been described. I would not have used those words, but I said, yeah, yeah, we're going to listen to that. She's going to listen. Thank you so much.
unbelievable. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Especially your Chicago. This one, wow. always, especially because I'm very appreciative. You're very young. Okay. So it's your class. So I have a big problem. Yes. Because it seems like two weeks ago you spoke about indifference. Like, just don't just stand there, do something about it. Yeah. And now you're saying So I'm very stuck. This, you know, obviously I have a specific issue that... Um, you don't see the difference? What? You don't you see the difference? But you also just have to stand. Of course. So how do you find it out? Whatever I have to do, I have to do. Moshe sees a Jew being beaten. He doesn't say God will do what he wants. No, take responsibility. I see. Of course. But Miriam was in a situation where Moshe is in the basket. What is she supposed to do? The Jews are in front of Ayam. I do whatever I have to do. Of course I want to do what I have to do. I have to stand up for justice and stand up for righteousness and do whatever I have to do without fear. And that is part of what Hashem wants from me. He doesn't want me to remain paralyzed and say, God runs the world, we do nothing. No. The same God who created the world, created nature, is responsible for nature and wants you to be a partner in the work. You understand what I'm saying? Whatever I have to do, I have to do. Always. God will bless you in what you do. I have to do. The Jews here were stuck between the sea and the Mitzrayim. They didn't know what to do. So Moshe said, Now stand and let God take you. You don't have to guess. You don't have to be frantic. You don't have to panic. You have to run away. Allow yourself to be in the journey with Hashem. So what if you really <coughs> stuck in life and you don't have an answer? <sighs> and not everybody is, you know, even some very, you know, even people who go for advice. It's very hard for me to give you an answer. <laughs> Without, <laughs> so do that, yeah. Okay, so let's. I had it at one point, and I. Rabbi Yy at theyeshiva.net. Rabbi Yy at theyeshiva.net. This class is brought to you by theyeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net/slash/donate.